Destiny City. Destiny City. Destiny City. Destiny City. Destiny City Church, a community of believers committed to helping others find and fulfill their God-given destiny. War is is ugly. It's 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 something that none of us won't even think about. But I want to remind you this morning that we're in a war. We're in a different kind of war. We may not be involved in a military conflict ourselves, but we have men and women around the world that are. And we know that war always has casualties. And that's true in the natural realm. It's also true in the spiritual realm. It just reminds me, and we've had several things that have happened in the past week that are just reminders of this war that we are in. And last week I told you that we're involved in a war, but we got to know who our enemy is. And we are fighting forces that are unseen. We're fighting forces that are, that are, that are strongholds and rulers and, and authorities that, that rule over dominions in the spirit realm. And, and as I told you, Satan has been given a lease. It was given to him by Adam. When Adam sinned and transgressed in the Garden of Eden, the authority that God had yielded to Adam was turned over to Satan so that he became the prince of the powers of the air. He became, as the Bible says, the God of this world. The little G, not the big G. You know, because the Bible says in Psalm 24 and 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and all they that dwell therein. So we know that it all belongs to God, right? But legally, because of God's covenant, because of God is a covenant God, there was an Adamic covenant that God had made with Adam and Eve. And when that covenant was broken, something happened. He yielded the authority that God had given him to Satan. But thanks be to God, Jesus came and took back that authority from Satan. Now, Satan is a pawn right now. I mean, he, he, he's kind of like the Queen of England. You know what I'm saying? He's a figurehead. His power's been stripped from him. But there are those who still bow down to him and do his dirty work for him. Because they don't know that he's a defeated foe. But we're at war, and war always has consequences. On September the 11th, 2001, we saw with our own eyes on television, and I'll never forget the imagery. It was so frightening to me. It was almost like a, like a horrible Hollywood movie or something. I'll never forget, I was out in the yard mowing the grass, and it, it was my day off on a Monday, and I was mowing grass and trying to get things done at my house. And, and my wife was working at the, at the church office, and one of the girls was working with us. And, and they had called and left a couple of messages. So when I called back, they said, turn on the TV. Because there's a couple of planes, there's a plane, a plane, that has hit the World Trade Center. And I'm thinking, well, somebody, some yahoo has flown a little cub or something, a little Piper cub into the, to the side of the, one of the Twin Towers, you know. I'm not, I'm not I, can't get, I can't grasp the concept of it yet. It just, it was surreal. Even that was surreal. To think that somebody would do that. And I go inside and I turn on the television. And as I'm standing there, the reporters are showing the World Trade Center with smoke coming out of it. And as they're standing there and they're talking about it and describing what they see, one of them says, oh no, look, 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 there's another one. And all of a sudden... Another plane flew through the other one. And I'm watching this on television. My heart's just going, wow, is this the end? I mean, it was just, I was stunned. And many of you saw the same thing and you saw the the, the imagery of it. And they, they don't even show it anymore because it was so horrific. It was awful. And then President Bush, George Bush, had to address the nation on the, on the, the tales of what had happened. And, and I'll, I'll never forget this one statement that he made when he stood there and he addressed the nation on television. And he says, we 
are at war, somebody is going to pay. You remember that statement? We are at war. Somebody is going to pay. Well, I tell you, folks, we are at war and somebody has got to pay. I am so, this morning my spirit is just so angry at the enemy. Not at people. Because I realize that it does no good to get angry at people. But the devil, I hate the devil. I hate what he's doing. He is the enemy of my God. He's the enemy of anything that is good. He does nothing good. Only evil. And I hate evil. And I declare war on the devil. I've declared war on him a long time ago. And he will pay for what he has done to innocent lives. I've I've watched kids grow up only to be taken out too quickly because of the lies and the deception and the schemes of the devil. To see their lives destroyed. I've seen marriages torn apart because of the devices and the schemes of the devil. I've seen moms and dads, you know, go their separate ways. I've seen people lying in the bed, wasting away from disease because of the devil and because of sin and because of these things. And it makes me angry at the devil. He's going to have to pay. I don't know about you, but, you know, we can just go along and we can sing a little happy song and say, que sera, que sera, whatever will be, will be. Just, you know, we can't do anything about it and... It's just the way it is. But I beg to differ with you. There is something that we can do about it. You see, we have weaponry of warfare. And I'm going to talk about that next week. I'm not going to get into that today. Because I want to build up to that. But I want to have the time to equip you to do battle with the enemy. We're at war. But what I want to tell you to do is that you've got to understand who you're fighting against. You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, and he's talking about what had happened in 1 Corinthians when they had had to discipline a man in the church because of his sin. And it was a horrible thing to do. And they had to do it. And, and I could just imagine Paul's thinking, you know, he was a father to this church. And he's looking at this church. And he knows human nature. All right? And he knows that when we understand what's going on and understand what it's doing to people, sometimes we get a little bit bitter. We get a little bit angry. Does anybody ever get angry about stuff? You see somebody doing something, you just want to punch them out? Hey, I'm, I'm the world's worst for that sometimes. When I see an injustice sometimes, I want to intervene. You know, there have been times, you know, I remember being in a parking lot one time and I saw a man abusing his wife verbally. And I almost got arrested because it was almost to the point. I was just about ready to do what Ecclesiastes says. With, you know, whatever your hand finds to do, do that with all your might. (laughs) But she got in the car with him. I'm thinking, oh, just it it made me so angry. And sometimes we want to do that. But, you know, when we do that, we're operating in what? The flesh. Operating in the flesh. That's no way to handle it. But our human impulse will take over at times and we will do crazy things. But Paul understood human nature. So when he had told the people at the church in Corinth to deal with this man, to, to expel him from the church, turn him over to Satan, as it were, for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit could be saved in the end. And you know what? They did it. But Paul understood something. He understood that when they did it, there were feelings involved. Everybody say feelings. feelings. Remember that song? Feelings. Nothing more than feelings. You know. And they, they had feelings and were human. And he understood human nature. So in 2 Corinthians, when he writes his second letter to the church, first of all, he tells them that they did the right thing. They expelled the man. But you know what the man did? He repented. And now he's telling them, because he's repented, now you've got to accept him back in, and you must forgive him. Wow. How many of y'all find it hard to forgive a child molester? Yeah. 
It's tough. Or an abuser. It's just hard to forgive them. You know, it's, it's, it's human nature. Paul understood that. But he says to them now, he said, okay, now forgive them. Forgive them, all right? Now let's release it and let's move on. He says, for we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes. One of the schemes of the devil is to get us bitter and angry and upset with people and with God and everything else. And and we live with this anger and this bitterness inside of us and we just become an angry, bitter person. So Paul says you've got to understand how the devil operates. You can't take it personal. But you've got to take it and you've got to deal with it. How are we going to deal with it? We have to understand that we are in a war. Jesus walked in love. You ever notice that? No matter what happened. I saw him get angry once, but he did it in love. He drove the money changers out of the temple. I love you. Now get out. I mean, he could have just smoked them, you know. I don't know how many were sitting at the table. Three little money changers. And he could just went. What happened to them? I don't know, some ashes on the floor. He could have, but he didn't. He just took a rope and taught them a lesson. Drove them out. But we have to understand, and Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.11, says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his his devices. Satan looks for opportunities to destroy your life. One of those opportunities that is used more than anything else is bitterness and unforgiveness. John Bevere calls it the bait of Satan. And so, so let's move on. So the church has, has, has stood by too long and watched the enemy do his evil work. And we talk about it and we say, oh, how terrible. We get on Facebook and we complain about it. Like that's going to do something. All that does is stir up more feelings. So there's really nothing we can do there, and we can talk about it, we can complain about it and everything else, but it's not really going to change anything. When our family members and our friends are being viciously attacked with sickness and death and disease, loss of jobs, income, attacks against their families, we're at war whether we want to be or not. And we say, well, I haven't declared war on anybody. I don't want to be a part of this world. Just leave me alone. I'll leave you alone. And that's kind of the way we do it. But I want to tell you something. Satan will never leave you alone. He will never leave you alone. He looks for opportunity to destroy you. How do I know this? Because the Bible says so. In John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. For the thief cometh not but for to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So what does the devil come to do? He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's his job, and he does it well. He will steal your joy. He will steal your finances. He will steal your families. He'll steal your marriages. He'll steal your health. He will steal your very life if you let him. He will kill you if he gets an opportunity. We've seen it too often. Because that's what he does. That's what he does. He'll take advantage of if he can. So, what do we do? 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you. Now, when you urge somebody, and we see the word urgent, you can understand that he is saying this is urgent matter here. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain. Everybody say abstain. To abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. Now James chapter 4 says, where do wars and fighting come from? Where do you think they come from? Do you think they come from across the sea? Well, the Chinese did it, or the Russians did it, or the Iranians did it, or the Iraqis did it, or somebody else did it. But I didn't do it. 
No, those wars come from within because of the lust that we have inside of us. Our desires to get, our desires to want more, our desires to want pleasure, our desires for the lust and the things of this world which will destroy you. That's where the wars come from because he says you desire to have and you don't have it because you pray and you ask amiss so that you can heap it upon your flesh. You can't get it that way so then you try to take it illegally. What am I saying illegally? Not necessarily breaking the law of man, but by breaking the law of God. We put God somewhere back in the background, and then we pursue the things that we want, and we're just like the rich man in the Gospels that Jesus talked about that had all of this stuff, and all he could think about was getting more. He had all this stuff that he could ever imagine. And he says, you know what? I've got a lot of stuff and I don't know what to do with it. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down the barns I've got and I'll build some bigger ones. So that I can get more stuff. So that when I'm old, I can build my retirement nest egg. And so when I'm old, I can sit back and enjoy life and eat, drink and be merry. Sounded like a good plan, didn't it? I mean, how many people will come to your house and present that plan to you? Now, let's look at your nest egg that you've got. Oh, that's not enough. You need more. Are you going to be content with what you have? That million and a half is not going to get you what you want. What do you want to do in life? Come on, tell me. What do you want to do? Oh, you want to travel. Any place in particular? Oh, you want to go to Paris? Oh, what else you want? Oh, Italy? Rome? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Let me help you build that nest egg. And when that happens, what do we do? We turn our focus to building that nest egg. So that becomes the most important thing in our life. That was this man, this rich man. that had all this stuff. Had so much he didn't know what to do with it. All he could think about was protecting his interest. And Jesus said, You fool. This night, your soul is required of you. And that very night, that man died. And you know what? He didn't get to take any of that with him. Because he ended up in hell. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes. And he cried out in his pain, in his agony. He said, Father Abraham, could you come and dip your finger in water and, and, and cool my parching tongue because I'm tormented in these flames? And Abraham says, I can't come. Well, send Lazarus. Let Lazarus come because Lazarus was a poor man that laid at his gate every day that he passed by. And he saw him and he was too busy to mess with Lazarus. He was too busy to get involved in his world. And so Lazarus died and Lazarus, when he died, he was taken into the bosom of Abraham in heaven, in paradise. Now all of a sudden, the rich man wanted what Lazarus had where all Lazarus ever wanted was a little bit of what the rich man had. See how the tables had turned. And Abraham says, I can't come to you, Abraham, and neither can Lazarus because there's a great gulf fixed between us. And he said, well, if you can't come to me, well then, would, would you send Lazarus or one of the prophets to my brothers and my family and tell them not to come to this horrible place? And Lazarus said, even if you were to rise from the dead and go to them, they still wouldn't believe. You see, we're in a war. We're in a war. What are we doing with our time? How are we investing? How are we investing our time? Are we, are we being efficient in fighting this war? Are, are, are we doing it the way that God wants us to do it? Or are we just, just falling into the trap of what the enemy wants to do? Uh, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Remember what I told you last week? We are a tripart being. Say it with me. I am a spirit. I have a soul, which is my mind, will, and emotions. And I live in a body. Say that with me one more time because you've got to get this. I am a spirit. I have a soul, 
I live in a body. That's who you are. What I see sitting in that seat is not you. It's not you. What is behind those eyes looking at me is you. Your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions. No wonder Jesus said, what would it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Lose his own identity. Lose connection with who he is or she is. Ron Cottles had this to say. He said that whatever we allow into our mind affects our thinking. And what is the gateway to the mind? The eyes, the ears, what we see and we hear. It affects our thinking. And our thinking affects our actions. And our actions determine our destiny. Our actions determine our destiny. You see, it all begins with what we think. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, 7. As a man thinks inside of himself, so is he. Who are you? Do you know who you are? Who did I say you were last week? I am a child of God. I am a child of the one true king. That's who I am. That's what makes me who I am more than anything else. And sometimes I have to remind myself. As a matter of fact, I have to constantly remind myself of who I am. I think I've told you all the story that I was driving one day. I'd had to go up to Chesapeake, Virginia when I was living on Hatteras Island. If anybody's ever been to Hatteras Island, you know that to get from Hatteras Island to Chesapeake, Virginia is, is no short trip. It's about three and a half hours. And so I would have to go up there and do hospital visits. And, and, and I was having trouble with my youngest son. And, you know, he's, he's a good boy. And I was, but he, he was in that stage, you know, I think he was 13 at the time. And if anybody knows, there's nobody in the world that is wiser or more knowledgeable than a 13-year-old. If you don't believe it, ask them. I mean, they really are convinced. I got all the answers can solve all the world's problems and everything else. They just got you to get, get you to go along with it because they're not old enough to vote. But, but that's, that's just the world and, and that's where we live. And so I was, oh man, sometimes I would get so, he would try my patience. My goodness, he would try my patience. And I got to where, you know, I, my kids were little. I would, if I, if I got upset with something, I would send them to the room and I would wait a few minutes and then I would go in and discipline them because I wanted some time to cool off. You know, that little cool off period. Get my thoughts together so I do it the right way. Well, sometimes I leave him in the room for hours. <laughs> and I tell him, you're, you're just a rebel. And if you don't get a hold of this, it's going to ruin your life. And I'd quote Proverbs to him. And one, and one day I was coming back from Chesapeake, Virginia. And I was listening to James Dobson on the radio and he had a, a Dennis Rayner, I believe, was who was on there with him. And they were talking about raising kids and, and they were talking about positive reinforcement. And, and they said that, you know, anything you say to a child, if you say something negative, you have to say 47 positives to offset that one negative. I'm thinking, Lord, I got a whole bunch of positives I got to say to that boy. Because I said so much negative to him. And when he said that, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I literally pulled off the side of the road and sat there and cried. I mean, I was just broke up over this thing. Because it just broke my heart, the things I'd said to my son. I was like, God, what do I do? And then it hit me. Who are you? Who are you? And I began to think I've told him all of his life he's a he's a man of God so when I got home 
I couldn't wait to get my arms around Justin and just tell him, son, I love you. I just want you to know how sorry I am for all these times I've told you that you're a rebel because you're not. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. And so from then on, whenever he would do something that was out of character, I would remind him, do you know who you are? You're a child of God. And you know, that began to change things in his life and in his thinking because it's constantly reminded of who he truly is. I'm a child of God. And when we remind ourselves of who we are, it makes abstaining from fleshly lust and all of these other things and all the entrapments of the world and the things that the enemy uses to ensnare us and hold us in bondage, it makes it so much easier to overcome because we know who we are and we know that we're only aliens and strangers passing through here, that this is not my true identity. This world is not my home. My citizenship is in heaven and because my citizenship is in heaven, I am ruled by the laws of my citizenship which is in heaven and therefore anything I bind on earth is bound in heaven and anything I loose on earth is loosed in heaven and so that just sets me free on so many fronts because I know who I am we're at war and as a child of God you're at war because the devil hates you why does he hate you he didn't like your daddy too much he don't like your father. So therefore, he hates you. I mean, he just, you're hated by osmosis. You just inherited that, that hate gene that, was, that the devil has identified in you. He hates you. And he can't get to God, so the next best thing is to destroy God's children. You know, my mama was a sweet little woman. She was a sweet, I mean, when I say sweet, she was Everybody knew her. Said, "Your mom was just the sweetest person." But I remember one day, we had a big, huge pecan tree in our yard. It was in our yard, but some of the limbs hung over in the neighbor's yard. And Mama told me to go out and pick up pecans. So I'm out there with a bucket picking up pecans, and I'm not really noticing where I'm going. I don't see an imaginary line or anything. So I had ventured over into the neighbor's yard picking up pecans, and she came out of the house. And she just lit into me. I mean, she was, she was just letting me have it for picking up pecans out of her yard. And she was doing everything but cursing me. And all of a sudden, I noticed there was a little movement behind me that was moving pretty quick. And it was my mama. I didn't know my mama could be like that. But she came over to here. She got right up in her face. I want to tell you one thing. That's my child you're talking to. And you got no right to talk to him. You want to talk to me about him. You come talk to me. But don't you talk to him like that. You ever talk to my son like that again. I'll tear into you. And that poor woman's like. And she never did say anything else to me. As a matter of fact, if she walked out on the porch, she saw me, she'd go back inside. I'm not messing with that boy. But that's the way it is. When somebody messes with you, you know what they're doing? If you so dare, turn around and poke your friend right in the eye. You won't do it, will you? Because you're liable to get slapped. And for good reason. But God said, whenever somebody messes with one of his, you're touching the apple, which is the pupil of his eye. I don't want to go messing with God's eye. Thank you, Jesus. I love a good soundtrack, you know. The enemy is out to gain mastery over our soul, over our mind, will, and emotions. Jude chapter 1 verse 3 says, and this is probably the most generic letter in the whole New Testament. It doesn't say that it was specifically addressed to anyone in particular except to those who are scattered abroad. And Jude says, to those who are called, are you called? 
To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, is that you? And kept in Jesus Christ. This is who the letter is to. So you can say the letter was to you, okay? May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to all the saints. That you contend earnestly for the faith. You know, one of the things that the military does when they are training you, now I've got Rick back here and he's got his Marine hat on. And you never say to a Marine, so you're a former Marine because you might get popped. You just say to them, thank you, Marine, for serving our country. Because once a Marine, always a Marine. Marine. I had to learn that the hard way. Once a Marine, always a Marine. Once a child of God, always a child of God. It gets back to knowing who you are. But one of the things they teach you, one of the first things they teach you, as a matter of fact, it is the first thing they teach you. In the military is that you're not your own anymore. Right? When you get off the bus, the old drill sergeant comes up with his smelly breath and gets right in your face and he tells you, I'm your mama, I'm your papa, I'm your sister, I'm your brother, I'm your lover. You belong to me. And for the next six months, you hear it constantly. You maggot. I'll make a Marine out of you yet. But they do this to strengthen your mind and your resolve and also to strengthen your body. Because when you come out of boot camp, you come out of basic training, They've taken you and they made a soldier out of you. They made a Marine or they made a, a cavalryman or they've made a paratrooper or whatever it is that they are trying to make out of you. They have done that through discipline. You've got to be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. That strength doesn't come by being namby-pamby and just sitting back and, and, and expecting to be spoon-fed everything and everything else. It comes through diligence. It comes through contention. It comes through struggle. And that word contend means to struggle for the faith. I tell you, we're in a war. We are in a war. It's not we're going to war. We're in it whether you want to be in it or not. So you have to contend for the faith. War is never easy. Casualties of war always exist. Some will fight with courage and conviction while others will surrender to the enemy and lose the fight. People get weary. Paul says, don't be weary in well-doing for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. Keep moving forward. Jesus said in Matthew 10, and you shall be hated by all on account of my name. Have you ever noticed that Christianity is, lo- is losing its popularity around the world? Some people don't like it so much they're shooting people and beheading them because they're Christians. And don't think that it couldn't happen here. But Jesus said, but the one who has endured to the end will be, who is the one who will be saved. The Bible speaks of a great falling away when many will desert and fall out of the race. Listen to what Scripture says in Hebrews 10, 23. This is a long passage of Scripture. I'm going to kind of break it down a little bit. But I want you to hear this. Because it's not preached a whole lot. Now, why is it not preached a whole lot? I believe it's because that, that we're afraid to bring it about. Because we have preached a gospel of easy believism that if you just, you, just, you just say a prayer, you go to the altar, you say a prayer, you're in. You got your ticket punched. You're on your way to heaven. Everything's cool now. Doesn't matter what you do, how you live your life, you're going to be all right. Oh, you might lose your rewards, but you're going to be okay. You're going to make it to heaven. I don't know if that's true or not. Not according to what this says. And I'm going to read it to you. I wouldn't want to take a chance on it, okay? 
Listen to what the scripture says. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one, one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We've kind of taken that in reverse. You know, when it comes to being in the house of the Lord on Sunday, I mean, we've kind of taken Sunday. I remember as a kid, we drove 20 miles one way to get to church with 11 kids and mom and dad and sometimes two or three visitors we took with us in a 1950 Chevrolet. You know, it had two bench seats, which meant some of us sometimes had to ride in the trunk. And if we couldn't get everybody in the trunk, we put a couple on the hood. You think I'm lying? My sister, she'll verify it. I mean, we did, 20 miles. And, but we did it because, I think because my mom and dad read the scripture where it says, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. But I remember driving all the way to church. You know what? There was not a store open anywhere. If you got gas in your car, you better get it on Saturday. If you was going to eat, If you didn't believe on cooking on Sunday, you better cook it on Saturday, which my mom did a lot of. But Sunday was a day of rest, and they honored the Sabbath. But then over the years, I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm 61 years old. And from the time I was about 10 years old, where they started to take down the blue laws and everything else, and everything else began to change. Came along about 1963, I guess, when some idiot judges decided to take prayer out of the schools and for the first time our nation went from being a lender nation to a borrower nation and we've seen a steady decline in the strength of our nation in the resolve of our nation in the finances of our nation we've seen a steady resolve in lawlessness I mean we've seen a steady uh, uh, anyway y'all know what I'm talking about but what we have done is that we have taken church attendance and keeping the Sabbath holy and all those things, we've kind of, you know, played it behind the grace card. You know, grace. It's all about grace, not by works. It's all about grace. And we've, we've used that grace card to say that we don't have to do anything, just believe, and we're on our way to heaven. But James said that the demons believe and they tremble. So it's not just enough to believe because he also says that faith without works is dead. So if we say we love God, we want to be where God's people are. We want to be in the presence of God. So as we see that day approaching, it should make us want to be more and more and more in the house of God, not less. Someone told me the other day that they had driven around Concord on a Wednesday night looking for a church that had Wednesday night services and they couldn't find one. It just hit me in the heart. And when I was a kid, man, we went to church all the time. If, if the pastor said that they were going to be painting in the church on Thursday night, we would ride over and watch him paint. We was going to be there. If the church doors was open, we was going to be there. But we have to... I'm just, let, me, let me move on, okay? The following verses are rarely if ever preached because it's so contrary to the doctrine of unconditional eternal security. And that's why you never hear this preached. But I'm going to read it to you. You know, sometimes if we just let the Word say what the Word says, we don't have to say anything more. I want you to think about this. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth... There remains, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Does that sound like losing rewards? No. That sounds like eternal punishment to me. And why? why? Why is that? Because anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now listen to this. This is very important. 
how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted everybody say insulted insulted the spirit of grace let that sink in it's an insult an affront to God if we go on willfully sinning after he has by his own blood cleansed us from our sin well it's awfully quiet in here We insult the spirit of grace. We use grace sometimes as a license for our sin. Oh, God loves me. He forgives me. All I got to do is just go and plead the blood of Jesus and I'm clean and I can just go on. No, that's not what you're to do. You're to repent. Throw yourself upon the mercy of God. Come to him in humility because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. See, that's the whole thing. When we come to him in humility and repentance, God forgives us and he cleanses us and we can move on with our lives. But if we, in our pride and our arrogance, think that we can conceal our sins and sweep them under the the rug and nobody sees them, or if we can just use the grace card and we can say, oh Lord, I messed up. No, you didn't mess up. To mess up is to do something and you don't realize you're doing it. That's to mess up. Or you just haven't gotten a hold of it yet. That's to mess up. But to willfully sin is another thing. Sometimes we know exactly what we're doing, but we do it anyway, thinking, well, God will forgive me. It'll be all right. There won't be any repercussions. I'm, I'm, I'm going to meddling now, so I'm going to move on. We got to be cognizant of this very stern warning in the scripture. There seems to be a lack of fear of God among the saints today that once existed. We're much more casual in our approach to God than we once were. I'm going to read on. I'm going to let it, just let it speak for itself. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge whose people? His people. Who are you? Are you the people of God? You are his people. The Lord will judge his people. And it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Wow. My dad was a strict disciplinarian. He was. And I feared him. I remember one time my dad came out of the house and he was calling for my sisters. I don't know what they did or didn't do. But I knew that fury was getting ready to fall. So he's calling them. And we had some woods behind our house. I ran through those woods to the house and went through the front door because he was coming out the back. And I went in and I found my mama, my advocate. And I said, Mama, Daddy's going to whoop us. Will you whoop me so he won't whoop me? Because she didn't whoop as hard as he did. But you know, to fall into the hands of God is a terrifying thing to think about. But we don't have to. He don't want us to. He's not all about judgment. He is all about grace. He wants us to appreciate what he's done for us. I appreciate the fact that God, by his mercy, saw me in my sinful state and forgave me. He forgave a lot. I don't know if I could have did what God did, but he forgave a lot. He forgave me completely, wondrously. Because, see, he knew a lot of stuff that nobody else knew. And he forgave me for that, too. But I, I appreciate what he's done. But I understand this, folks. We are in a war. I'm telling you all this because I know how the enemy operates. He will deceive you. He will lie to you. He will destroy you. He will ensnare you. He will do everything he can to cripple you, to steal your joy, 
to steal your relationship with him, the relationship with other believers. He'll do anything. We're in a war. And like I said, you're in this war whether you want to be in it or not. Just because your enemy hates you, he's out to destroy you. But you got to fight. You got to fight. And it's like I said last week in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11, it says, having done all to stand. I'm not going anywhere, devil. I'm not going anywhere. I found out at an early age, the best way to handle a bully was just attack him. I don't know where I learned that, but it worked. So whenever the schoolyard bully would come after me, I'd find a way to attack him first. And then after that, we'd be all right. He'd go his way, I'd go mine. That's the way the enemy is. He's a bully. And the best way to deal with a bully is attack him. How do we do that? Well, I'm going to tell you how to do that next week. I'm going to give you some weapons of warfare to fight with. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. But I want to tell you this. You've got to make a determination. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight the good fight of faith. Paul told Timothy in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of faith. We've got to fight. So when do we fight? I'm going to tell you something. I've only begun to fight. I'm so ticked at the enemy and what I've seen he's done to some of the folks that I love. I'm so angry at him. I'm ready for a fight. He's picked a fight. I think he's come to the wrong place. He's picked a fight. Kind of reminds me of John Paul Jones. You know, y'all know who John Paul Jones is? He wasn't one of the monkeys. That was Davy Jones. John Paul Jones was one of the first admirals of the Continental Navy. United States of America before it became the United States of America. He happened to be a captain at this time, but he was a very efficient fighting man. I mean, you either loved him or hated him. Some of them hated him and some of them loved him, but he was probably available to the highest bidder. But he had been really ticked off by the British Navy and by, the, by Britain itself. He didn't like what they were doing, so he joined up with the Continental Navy. And he had attained the rank of a captain, so he was captain of his own ship. And, and he was... In his, his little, I, don't, I guess you would call it more like a schooner. But he came in contact, he was in combat with a British frigate. The British frigate had 28 guns. His little boat had like eight guns. And when you think of a frigate, you think of it and, and, and a schooner. The schooner was like here and the frigate was like here, way up high. 28 guns, 14 on each side. So you can imagine and here's this little boat down here. And it's, it's like a chihuahua going up against a Great Dane or something. And they're fighting this fight. And, and the only way to get, get in to them was to get up close to their boat because then they could, they could only shoot over top of you. So what he had done is he had rammed their little boat, the little Serapis, into the bow of this huge frigate. And, and the captain of the frigate, thinking that John Paul Jones had already perished because he couldn't see his boat. All he could see was a sail every now and then because they were way up high and they were way down low. He said to him, have you struck? In other words, have you lowered your flag? Because he couldn't see his flag. That meant surrender. He said, have you struck? Of course, John Paul Jones had not struck his flag. And he sends a note back to the captain. He says, we have only begun to fight. And they won. They sank that huge frigate because they refused to give in. The devil comes like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he roars and he sounds vicious and, and he has great power. Don't get me wrong. He has great power. But greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. All power and authority is mine through Jesus Christ. And I've only begun to fight. I am backed by the greatest power that the world has ever known. As a matter of fact, that power lives within me. And he lives within you. And we've got to fight the fight of faith. We've got to contend for the faith. We've got to stand in the authority that we have as saints. Folks, we can do war. One opportunity we have to fight. We have training sessions here on Wednesday night. It's called intercessory prayer. 
We're training people how to pray effectively, pray in the Holy Ghost. And, and we're seeing some things happen because of prayer. And you know what? When you begin to, to, to mess in the enemy's territory, he's going to hurl everything he's got at you to try to destroy you. But you don't stop. Intercession means to strike upon. And you don't stop. You just keep doing it. But ultimate victory is ours when we stand in the authority that we have as children of God. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but that's what's coming up. We're going to talk about some of the weapons of warfare that we've got. But I want to challenge you today, folks. It looks like the enemy's way above you, but let me tell you something. You've got him right where you want him. Think about David, this little lad. And when Goliath looked at him, he says, What am I, a dog? She sent this little boy out to play with me or something? And he said some things to him, and I'm sure that the writer of the scriptures probably cleaned up the lingo a little bit. But David took him down because he said, You come at me with a javelin and with a sword. And you, you big giant, you big galoot, I come at you in the name of the Lord God of Israel whom you have defied. Took him down. And destroyed him with his own sword. The enemy, your enemy, has created his own destruction by his own actions. But God has given us authority over him. But we've got to fight. But you've got to realize you're in a war. It's not against flesh and blood. Principalities. Powers of darkness. Spiritual wickedness in high places. You're in a fight. We've got to fight. Say it with me. I have only begun to fight. Uh, you didn't say it like you mean it. I have only begun to fight. Say it one more time. I have only begun to fight. Amen. Amen. You should have enough gumption in you that you go looking for devils to beat up on. Know who you are. Know who you are. Are you afraid of the devil? No. I'm just ticked at him. I'm mad at him. I want to take him down. And if one of us can put to flight a thousand, two of us can put to flight ten thousand, who will stand with me? Who will stand with me? Stand. Stand. I want to tell you something, though. When you go out to fight against the enemy, you don't go in someone else's armor. You go in the armor that God has given you. You go in the whole armor that He has given you. We'll talk about that some more next week too. You've been listening to Destiny City Church, a community of believers committed to helping others find and fulfill their God-given destiny. For more information, visit us online at destinycity.org.